Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice, and this is part of my series, What's Up with Mike McShane? And today we're going to answer the question, what's up with Sora schools? Sora is a really interesting online private school. It's based in Georgia right now, but as you'll find out on the podcast, there are definitely plans to take it much wider than that. On the podcast, we have the co-founder and CEO, Garrett Smiley. You know, there's always been talk about online education and the pros and cons of online education and whether or not online education is the future. But Garrett and I have a really interesting conversation. I think he's a very thoughtful guy, and that'll come across in this interview here. Really someone who took the time to think about other people who've tried similar things and the lessons that he could take away from them and his whole team. So if you're interested in online education, if you're interested in private education, we spent some time talking about just kind of entrepreneurship in general. So I think this is a conversation that a lot of people will benefit from. And so without further ado, because I've got you all hooked right now, so we're going to go ahead and deliver the goods. This is my conversation with Garrett Smiley, the co-founder and CEO of Sora Schools. So Garrett, I went on the Sora Schools website, and it says in big block letters, the future of school. So I would love to know, I don't know if we're doing our sort of Marty McFly thing here, and you can have your dispatch <laughs> from the future. So what do you see as the future of school? Yeah, Sora, what we stand for is bringing world-class, future-focused education to everyone through the internet. So I know I answered your question with the word, generally not how you're supposed to define words, but how we view the future of education is interdisciplinary education. So having students learn real-world problems or inquiry-based education, a project-based education. It's a lot of the buzzwords that we know and love, but really, 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 really what we're trying to do is take the best practices that we see in a lot of independent schools that have existed for hundreds of years, right? These golden gate, golden 40, 50, $60,000 a year experiences that are really focused on the student where they're at and their interest, personalizing the curriculum to them, their strengths and weaknesses, asking them what they find meaningful and beautiful about the world, right? And then bringing their learning to them, meeting them halfway in that respect. But as we all know, as I'm sure your listeners know, that's not usually how things work in the traditional education system. It's been designed to be efficient, right? And we cannot blame the people who design this and the people who continue to run it. It's an amazing thing that we've done to scale education the way we have. But we just think in the year 2023, I think that's what it is now, 2023, we should be able to bring some of these practices that have thus far been very hands-on, not scalable, expensive, human-intensive, like an interdisciplinary student-led curriculum and use software, use the internet, use all these things that these corporations, right, with hundreds of thousands of employees, even this Zoom software we're using now to make this experience much, much, much more accessible to students who traditionally wouldn't have access to this type of experience. Yeah, so it seems like the school sits at this very interesting intersection, which is a sort of pedagogical model that we tend to associate with brick and mortar education, small class sizes, all of those things that are necessary to make kind of project-based learning, personalization, meeting students where they are, but using the internet or having students go to school online. So I think 
it may be difficult for people to wrap their heads around how that works. So maybe it might make sense to go from like the perspective of a student. And then I'm actually fascinated to know, like from the perspective of a teacher, what it looks like. But if you are a student attending school, like what does it look like? What does a day look like? What does a class look like? Absolutely. Before I answer that directly, I'll say Sora is designed to be a high fidelity, this world-class independent school experience. It's just online right? Just like how maybe some of your listeners are remote workers. There can be wonderful work environments where we do impactful, challenging work and, you know, in the manner that you would in the office just online, right? So it doesn't mean it's a watered down version. It doesn't mean we're attacking even a different problem per se. It's just the format's changing. And we really don't see that high fidelity, high quality experience online, usually online, is frankly just a worse version, right? But Sora is trying to completely change that paradigm. Just don't have the costs of a building and we use software to make it much more efficient to bring it down to a price point that is, as of today, less than the per pupil spend of like a traditional public school. So that's the context for my answer. How Sora works for students is every six weeks, our students meet with their advisor, which is a trusted adult we have this advisor relationship, much like you would see in many high-quality independent schools, to map out what they want. So all that we ask our students is to choose enough learning experiences, learning enough new stuff to graduate on time, but which experiences is totally up to them. So whether they want to take one of our interdisciplinary expeditions, something like the physics of sharks, the science of Marvel, the life and math of Socrates, right? Any of these how to build a Martian society, right? We have so many of these, whether they want to join a live session, which is structured like a liberal arts college, you might imagine small groups, two to three meetings synchronously a week, pre-work, et cetera. They can join that. They could do an independent study project. So they pose, here's how I want to demonstrate my mastery, or maybe they do something in between, like we have asynchronous curriculum or maybe a group project they propose with a student. So it doesn't matter what it is. It's really about finding something of our literally thousands of options we offer speaking to their interests, right? So they go through that. And then six weeks later, yes, they have a default path. They've set with their advisor before. Then they have the opportunity to recalibrate, go, oh, actually, I would like to take, I found this super interesting or, oh, I'm not super into science or I don't really want to be a doctor anymore. Let me explore this thing. So they're constantly tweaking that. They're taking roughly call it four experiences at a time. They meet two to three times per week for an hour. That small group, that's active learning, that's a debate, that's a Socratic discussion, that's even a lab we do. I could go on forever. We have so many different modalities and experiences that we offer, but they're ultimately in the driver's seat of their education. So all of these courses that you have, are they sort of like a library that students can choose from? But you mentioned that they're synchronous. So are they just sort of happening on a rolling basis, like an instructor is teaching that course every six weeks and you can kind of loop into it with them? Are you hiring people kind of ad hoc to do this? So I guess that was a whole bunch of questions embedded in one. So maybe we'll start with like, who are your teachers and how do you recruit them? Do they design their classes? Do you design them for them? Let's talk about the teaching aspect of this. Wonderful question. We have, of course, I'm biased, but the best faculty. They're full-time people that we hire. We hire them from lots of different backgrounds. Most have come from you know, independent schools or even public schools, but 
we are lucky enough to have hundreds of applications for every open faculty position we've listed to date. And that's because, yes, of course, we pay well and we like to respect our teachers in that way. But more importantly, we are asking them, when you come to Sora, you're going to co-create eight to 10 learning experiences with our talented curriculum team that you own, that are yours. And these are often like one of our first teachers, one of the students' favorites. <laughs> he has created an ethics through Dungeons and Dragons experience. He loves D&D. He loves ethics. He's the philosophy guy. So teachers can bring in, we call them experts at Sora, they can bring in their passions, their curiosities, and create these novel learning experiences that I don't even think you would see even at the most elite schools because we are asking them to bring their passions to the classroom, right? And students really can tell, frankly. So to answer your previous question, the faculty are usually teaching about five of these sessions at a time. Yes, we have lots of formative feedback. We have office hour models. They have their advisees. So it's a little bit of a different class load than the traditional high schooler. But yeah, they're asked to teach five-ish of these at a time. And I see, I go to these all the time, they are a hundred X more energetic and exciting than the high school classes I had to go through. <laughs> so now your school sits within an education system that is oftentimes not particularly well built to handle innovative models or playing with calendars and schedules and credits and all of those things. So I'm sort of curious, do students get kind of quote unquote credit? Do they have a transcript? How are they able to move on, you know, to go to college, any of that sort of stuff? Wonderful question. So I think there's often a false dichotomy in the progressive innovative education sphere. I think oftentimes parents or even faculty members think that it is either we have these stringent academic standards, every student is going through the same scope and sequence, they're getting their grades, and that's what gets them a college-ready high school transcript. I think that's a common conception. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's let's build a wonderful student-led curriculum, the likes of you know Sudbury Valley or Agora for going to the EU or you know that side of the spectrum. And in most cases, the academic standards are lax. If the students don't get to everything, it's okay. And that will not net out an accredited transcript. So I think oftentimes we think that you can either fall in one of these two camps. At Sora, we're going right between the eyes. We're going right down the middle. We are saying you can have a world-class student-led curriculum where students are choosing between these thousands, literally thousands of learning options every six weeks. They're submitting their projects while we're ensuring they get all the academic standards you would expect in a traditional middle and high school experience. So we are making sure, at SOAR we call these units and abilities, we are making sure every six weeks they're demonstrating mastery over enough new units and abilities to graduate on time. But our software, our custom software that we've built, tracks each student's independent progression. So every student's in a different space. We know that, it's okay. But by the time they're at the end, we will make sure with their advisor and the software in partnership, we'll make sure that they get all that they need to to accomplish their goals and get our accredited transcript, accredited by Cognia, WASC, approved by the NCAA, right? All the big names. And we have thus far, we've only been in existence for four years, but we have 100% college acceptance rate, pop colleges, Georgia Tech, RISD, right? So clearly it works. <laughs> so now 
do those students, does it have to be linked up to like their state that they're living in, like the standards to it? And do you have to link those up to 50 different states? Or if you, I don't know if you're going around the world, if you have to link it up to other people, are you able to pick sort of one state's standards? Like how do you get those kind of gears to work together? Yep. So we are a school based out of Georgia in the United States. So we abide by most of the rules there. How it's structured is the students are basically in most states. My legal team is going to yell at me, so I won't make any blanket statements. But in most states, how it works is you're a distance learner in Georgia, and it's all right. Some states, we have to make concessions. We have to fill out independent paperwork, whatever it may be. But as an independent school accredited by these third parties, we actually don't have to act like a charter school or a public school matching up the standards of the states directly. It's like going to like a boarding school. Right. But you're, that's exactly you're, right. Without leaving school home. from your home. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and so talking about your students, like where do they come from? Do they have a typical academic profile? Are they a little bit of everything, a little bit of everywhere? Are you starting to see trends and patterns? Like who are your students? We're definitely seeing trends and patterns. Of course, being an early program, I think we've made tremendous strides in four years. And I would call us one of the leaders and scaling an innovative form of education, but we are still a young program. So we're seeing that there are certain profiles that it really attaches to nowadays, communities that really, really, really like what we're doing. And the way I would describe this, (laughs) this typical student, although of course, across the spectrum, we have students, is a student who perhaps they get B's and C's in their traditional public school. They are a bright kid but they come home, they ask their parents questions like, when am I ever going to need to use this? Why do I need to learn this? You know, this feels like a waste of my time. I can learn this faster on my own, right? These are things that we always, always hear with our students. And frankly, I think many of our parents who are most successful at Sora, they describe just seeing the joy of learning leave their students' eyes, right? It's starting to become a soul-crushing endeavor rather than a soul-building, which is what education is meant to be, right? So we hear these things over and over. And so sure, they could continue in their traditional public environment, or maybe their more traditionally styled private school, but they feel like it's doing something to their kid, like it's not healthy for them. And so that's usually the impetus. So they start looking at what will make my kid feel like there's more meaning in this. And that's many of the times when they come across Sora. So they're looking for other options. And the way we message around creating a relevant curriculum, putting the student in the driver's seat of the design with a trusted advisor, adult. It really speaks to those types of families. But then again, we have the extremely gifted students. We have students who are academically challenged and we need a lot more support. And both sides have been highly successful in our program as well. Now, what have you learned from sort of other attempts to do similar things? Like obviously there have been a lot of other online schools. I think we can fairly say some have met with more success than others. Um, there have been other kind of for-profit schooling models. Some have met with more success than others. So I'm wondering, as you sort of look at that landscape, like what lessons have you taken away from other sort of attempts in this area? Another fantastic question. You're good at questions. <laughs> there have been hundreds of attempts to do similar things, right? And when we were starting Sora back in 2019, even before the pandemic, when virtual schooling became a boom and a trend or whatever, actually 2018, when we were starting this, we did exactly that. 
we took a step back. We tried to talk to as many people as possible who started online schools, who started more progressive, even in-person schools that didn't pan out. And can we find commonalities? And I will say online schools, even with some very, very well-known, I won't make enemies on this podcast, but very well-known colleges and brands attached to them. And they're not good. They're just not good. They were built with a 90s mentality of what the internet was, namely a, a content repository. And that is not the superpower of the internet anymore. The internet is, it, it solves the content problem of education forever, but they didn't even attempt to build the human into the machine. They didn't try to replicate that world-class brick and mortar experience that we see in many hundreds, thousands of schools that do it really well. They were saying, that's not our core competency, screw it, <laughs> right, was the sentiment we heard and saw over and over. And we wanted to go the complete opposite direction. We wanted to, in the ethos of a more student-centered school, say content is handled. We're actually going to meet students, design the curriculum with them. In the beginning, Sora was much more of a, every student designing their projects. We didn't have this expedition model as fully built out. But what we knew is we wanted to lead with the human relationships, the advisor model, the faculty. And we immediately saw how well that worked. It's hard, of course. It's easier to throw some YouTube. This is my experience in my online school. They threw at first textbooks and then near the end and like the 2008-ish, whenever YouTube came out era, it started to be YouTube links or whatever. And they went, let me know when you're ready for a test, right? And that's how they've been designing it for a long, long time and still are. We went just the complete opposite direction. It's harder, but it's worthwhile, right? And that's the ethos we've been building in since then and finding efficiency rather in the administrative aspect of running a school. So building a lot of software to empower our students and our educators to do what they do best. So we have the highest proportion of teaching faculty to students. That's our cost driver instead of the bloat of administration that we see, especially in higher ed, but creeping down into secondary school as well. Yeah, I could go on a long time about the learnings. I assume you don't want me to. <laughs> no, no, I do. I actually, I'm super interested. I was actually going to maybe broaden the lens just slightly. Just your perspective as an entrepreneur in the education space, you know, Obviously, you mentioned the pandemic. You know, there's so many interesting things that are happening, but they're running into the sort of existing model that's there. So I would just be interested in your thoughts on the kind of not just Sora in particular, but just sort of educational entrepreneurship in general, just the kind of like headwinds and tailwinds. So, like, what is propelling you forward and what is making the space more hospitable for people like you who are creating interesting things to try and solve problems? And then what are those headwinds? What are the things that you're running into? Is it regulation? Is it whatever? Uh, you know, is it skepticism? Is it politics? Is it who knows? So yeah, maybe we'll start with, you know, you can start with either one and go if you want to sort of start with the headwinds and then come back <laughs> yeah. around to the tailwinds, however you want to do it. I'll start with the headwinds because you touched on one of them in that intro. I think one of the primary headwinds is this skepticism, or I've heard it referred to in certain blogs. I don't know if this is a proper way to, <laughs> to say it, but the COVID PTSD of the experience. Parents sure. are like, whatever the hell that was, I don't want that again. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Not, we want nothing to yeah. do with it. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. And it's hard to place blame on the traditional programs that overnight had to transition to being an online program. And I totally get it. And I know some 
friends who were navigating these waters and holy cow, it was difficult. But parents saw a quite bad port, if you will, of traditional school to the online environment. And it was rushed, right? But it was, from my perspective, I'm sorry if this offends anyone, it was the worst parts of traditional school brought to the impersonal internet while in the process removing all of the crutches that makes traditional school work in many cases, the extracurriculars, the relationships, the stuff that most admins see as a bug, not a feature. But in reality, it's a huge feature. And it's like the buttress holding up the crumbling institutions from my perspective. So they got rid of that on accident. They kept the bad parts. And then they even, in most cases, ran that poorly because it was such a rush job. I probably would have too in their position. So I can't blame them there. But what parents now think is that's online school, right? But Sora is a world-class, high-fidelity, independent school experience where our classroom is the internet. It's a completely different paradigm. And so that consumer education has been difficult, but we're finding our way around it. This is an interesting anecdote. We did a study, internal study. I don't think I've actually shared it anywhere, but so here we'll be <laughs> breaking news. We asked parents, I think about a thousand parents, not of our current population, what percentage of your student thrived during COVID education? And actually 38% of them said they thought they thrived. Yes, they answered yes to that question. Then we asked, what percentage of you would consider online school as a permanent option going forward? And the answer was 3%, right? What is that disconnect? So I consider in my mind that 35% to be our winnable population. They actually liked what it did to their kid. Maybe the pressure is less, the more asynchronous environment, the bullying is a real thing. And maybe some kids removing from that toxic environment was extremely healthy to them. So they actually liked what they saw. They said their student thrived, but they look at the academic quality like never again. It's not worth it, right? My kid's falling behind. What will everyone think? And so I really consider those 35% to be our winnable population going. You can have that. You can have your cake and eat it too. And we're bringing a world-class innovative education into your home. So I think that's a main headwind from a certain perspective. The tailwinds are immense though. We have the ESAs passing state after state. Sora, we're $12,500 a year. So we're still, of course, expensive for many families, although we're on the affordable side of the spectrum as far as independent schools go. But this $8,000 in some states of Arizona and now Iowa and Utah, it's looking like it's all coming around this $8,000 because the state's contribution to the pot, that's going to be a game changer, an absolute game changer for so many families and making this accessible, which is, you know, we're a social impact company. So that's why we're ultimately doing it. So many more tailwinds, just how it woke parents up to what was happening. Sure, they have this trauma, but I don't hear many parents, as we were just saying, they didn't like what they saw. And so the default of traditional education, which has been the case for so long, I think is becoming less of a default. And that's how we're seeing the 9% decrease in enrollment and all these other massive trends. So many, we could talk about this all day, I think. <laughs> well, I'd be interested sort of as you now kind of look into the future, the next year, the next five years, sort of where are you now? Where do you see yourself in the kind of short to medium term? Yeah, SOAR has the advantage of having started in 2018. So we've actually been running this program for years. We have gone through tons of iterations. We have 
incredible backers who have funded things like our LMS and just building an incredible team around this problem. We're super lucky to have that. And we've been doing it for a while. <laughs> so I think we're actually quite good at it. And it is an incredibly hard problem to solve. Starting a school is ridiculously challenging since we're speaking to all the other entrepreneurs out there. But I think it's worth doing. The value proposition of schools as an entity are more needed than ever. There's content. I see so many entrepreneurs attacking the content problem. From my perspective, that's an illusion. There's no content problem after the internet, especially in 2023. The problem that we need solving is trusted relationships between students with each other faculty and students, bringing the parent into the education. It's inspiring them to want to learn, finding meaning for what they want to do. So that is really the core function of a well-designed, which is not many of them, schools from my perspective. And that problem has never been more relevant. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Probably. Yes. Not. Well, I'm, no, I that was like it answered in like the very kind of big picture philosophical way, which I appreciate. I was wondering more of just kind of like brass tacks of like, do you see yourself you know, are you hoping to grow 10%? Are you hoping to double? Mm. I mean, I know some of the other folks that I've chatted here, you know, some of these micro school providers and others, they're like, as soon as we can open one, <laughs> it's full. So we're open, you know, they're popping up like mushrooms everywhere. And I don't know if you're thinking of growing more slowly and purposefully growing faster. Like, how do you think about that as you look to the future? Yeah, it's such a tough question. And it's hard for me to moralize on this. But I will say that was our approach for four years really until this year, we want to grow slowly. We want to respect the problem. We know how difficult this is. We also know what the stakes are. It's kids' childhoods. It's setting them up for the rest of their life. So it's not really something you want to get wrong, at least for me, if I wanted to sleep at night, right? <laughs> so we took it very slowly, and I'm glad that we did. But now our satisfaction scores are just through the roof, frankly, both students and parents still problems, still opportunities that we're working on and huge initiatives that we're pushing to make it even more awesome for next school year. But my mindset has shifted that now we have this thing that's helping a lot of people, really, really helping them, like touching stories we're getting all the time. How do I take this thing and help as many kids as possible? That's how we've set ourselves up from the beginning, being on the internet and wanting to be scalable and accessible, like we said in the beginning of the show. How do we fully live into that mission now? So that's our number one priority as an organization. So of course, just enrolling students directly by having partnership conversations or even opening up little in-person micro school type things. We're trying to keep an open mind because what we've built, I think it can go in a dozen or more different form factors depending on the community and the need. And is it scalable to the point where you think you could have 10,000 kids, 50,000 kids, 100,000 kids. I hope like, a million. A, a million? million is the goal. <laughs> See, is, so is that the number? Is that like you would love to have a million kids in a Sora school? Yep, globally. That's the number when I wake up in the morning that really excites me. I think there's tons of merit to building a global school as well, which we didn't even touch on, and only an online school can do that. But in the short term, so we've only accepted 200 kids to date in keeping this small and growing intentionally, mostly off of word of mouth. In the short term, we are looking to remove all the blockers or all the bottlenecks rather that will keep us from growing rapidly in this way. And thus far, our software is scalable. We've had no problem recruiting 
extremely talented faculty. As I said earlier, we have less than 1% acceptance rate of our faculty to date. We're building out a robust teacher training and credentialing. We're building out all the pieces that you would need to bring this to 100,000, a million kids. Now we just got to do it. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better place to end than that. I know I will be definitely looking forward to seeing what you all are able to do. I will say if folks want to find out more, where can they go to find out more? You can go to our website, which is soraschoolsplural.com. We're also soraschools or sora underscore schools on most social platforms, which we keep updated. Awesome. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. I really enjoyed that conversation. We could have kept talking for much, much longer, but I can tell he's a busy guy. <laughs> so we wanted to kind of get the hits, gave that information of their website, their social media and stuff. They have a really beautiful website. You can check it out and get more information that's on there. I think it'll be interesting. I hope to have him back on the podcast in a year or two or five or 10, Lord willing, if this thing's still going on then to learn whether they were able to accomplish this. I'm always really energized by people who have big goals, who want to do things, who want to help kids, want to help as many kids as they can in the best way that's possible. So yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens there. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I really appreciate Garrett taking the time, having the chance. It's really a privilege doing podcasts like this. You know, the last few, those of you that have been listening to the last, you know, four, five, six of these have really stood out in my mind of just like really interesting, thoughtful people from a lot of different backgrounds, doing different things. But I'm just energized. I think, you know, so much of the stuff during the pandemic and, you know, seeing NAEP scores and everything that was coming out after that, it's very easy to get discouraged. But obviously seeing school choice on the march in so many states, as Garrett brought up, in Iowa and in Utah, building on growth in Arizona and West Virginia and all these places, Florida, Indiana, Wisconsin, all these places that are making it happen. I think we're going to see more innovation like this and kids having access to things that they never had access to before. And it's an exciting time. And it's cool to see people really jumping in. And there's this energy that I just haven't seen in the space in some time. You know, I think when I was kind of getting into this and the kind of, I don't even want to say how long ago it was, but the kind of 2008, 9, 10, 11, there was a certain energy in kind of quote unquote education reform. It was for kind of different issues and for different reasons. But there was definitely an energy there and, and it kind of petered out, to be perfectly honest with you. But something's happening. Something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. But no, I think things are happening here now that are super interesting and encouraging. And it's fun to be a part of it. And it's fun to talk to people who are a part of it. That was a very long, <laughs> discursive take on that conversation I just had. But that's where it took my mind. And for those of you who are still listening to this, thanks for going on that little, <laughs> little detour with me. As always, thank you so much to Jacob Vinson, who edited this podcast and who's had to listen. If no one else had to listen to this, Jacob certainly did. As always, follow us, subscribe to this podcast, email me interesting people. A great thing about this podcast is it's kind of reaching escape velocity at this point where almost all of these people that I talk to are other people who I know and trust sending me people's names. Hey, this is a really interesting person. You should talk to them. It makes my life so much easier. So send me people's names. I love talking to folks. I love learning from them sharing what they're doing. And with that, I'll leave it. So thank you so much for listening. It was great talking to you. It was great talking to Garrett. And I look forward to joining all of you again on another edition of Ed Choice Chats. Take care.